You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. WinT and other Chinese threats have been active against German and French targets. The U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee has issued the first volume of its report on Russian operations against U.S. elections. This one deals with infrastructure. Louisiana declares a state of cyber emergency over ransomware. Johannesburg's power utility is also hit with ransomware. And you could get up to 175 bucks from the Equifax breach settlement. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 26, 2019. A joint report by BR and NDR describes the long-running Winti industrial espionage campaign against major German companies. The targets were drawn from the DAX 30, a set of blue-chip companies listed on the Frankfurt Exchange. Winti's operations go back to 2011 and showed a familiar mix of intelligence and criminal motivation. The initial attacks seemed purely criminal and were directed against Karlsruhe-based gaming company Gameforge. By 2014, the group had moved on to industrial espionage against chemical and pharmaceutical firms, starting with Dusseldorf's Henkel, whose adhesive technologies were of interest. The operations against French targets had a political motivation, according to L'Opinion. Chinese operators worked to manipulate voting at the UN to prevent a French candidate from election to the international body's agriculture and food portfolio. The U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee has released the first volume of its report on Russian election interference. No new revelations, but the scope, intent, and methods of Russian operations in 2016 are plainly documented. This volume of the report focused on threats to election infrastructure, with a consideration of influence operations to come later. The report concluded that extensive activity targeting election systems had begun by 2014 at least, and that much of that activity targeted state and local election infrastructure. All 50 states received attention from Moscow between 2014 and 2017. The level of activity is alarming, but the good news is that the committee found no indications that votes were changed, vote tallying systems were manipulated, or that any voter registration data was altered or deleted. The federal government did provide warnings at the time, but the committee regards those as insufficient and often directed to the wrong people. Further volumes will no doubt deal with influence operations. In the meantime, the Washington Post notes that it's not just Russia. Other countries, especially Iran, have also gotten into the business. Russia has shown the greater sophistication, but Iran hasn't been too far behind. Russian information operations tend to be opportunistic, their goal being degradation, not persuasion. Iranian operators like to persuade and tend to be a bit one-note, 
establishing sock puppets that retail stories from Tehran's official media and that tend to focus on the Islamic Republic's line. States of emergency in the U.S. are generally declared in the aftermath of natural disasters like hurricanes and ice storms. Now one has been declared in response to a set of cyber attacks. The governor of Louisiana has declared a state of emergency in response to ransomware attacks on school districts in three northern Louisiana parishes, Sabine, Morehouse, and Wuchita. Governor John Bell Edwards has declared the emergency to invoke special powers the state now makes available for response to cyber incidents. Files have been encrypted and systems are generally down throughout the school districts. This is exactly the second time a state has declared an emergency over a cyber attack. Colorado did it last year when its Department of Transportation was hit by SamSam ransomware. A note on Louisiana local government. A parish in Louisiana is what other states would call a county, a level of government between the municipal and the state. It has only an etymological religious significance. A parish is a civil institution. A South African city's electrical utility has been interfered with by a cyber attack. City Power, the electrical utility that serves Johannesburg, was hit by ransomware, according to multiple reports in the local media. The attack didn't cause a power failure, but it did induce a kind of service disruption. Customers who prepay for electricity are unable to do so because many of City Power's public-facing business services have been taken offline. The Johannesburg attack is therefore similar to the incident Baltimore is still recovering from. In the U.S. case, it was water billing. In South Africa, it's electricity. In Baltimore's case, the mayor's office has backed off from earlier claims that the city was hit by rogue NSA Eternal Blue attack code. It now acknowledges that the attack was Robin Hood ransomware and not sinister stuff making its way up I-95 from Fort Meade. The city is still investigating and recovering, but it can't say too much because the investigation is still ongoing. They have released the names of the companies Baltimore has retained to help with the investigation and remediation. They're FireEye, Clark Hill, Secular, Dynetech Services, Microsoft, and Crypsis. So does it scale? Who hasn't asked or at least heard that question? With respect to content moderation, the answer seems to be not painlessly and not without a lot of labor. Content moderation at YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter is largely done in a very labor-intensive fashion, with employees in the Philippines looking at an awful lot of awful, the Washington Post reports. It's not clear that it could be otherwise. Whatever hopes are being vested in the algorithms, they're apparently not up to speed yet. And finally, The Verge and others are explaining how to apply for Equifax breach compensation. Don't expect too much. You might get up to $175 if you're lucky. So don't spend it all in one place. Hey, everybody. I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com resilience. 
In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Uh, Daniel, it's great to have you back. We wanted to talk today about some work that you've been doing about uh, test beds and designing experiments around industrial control systems. What can you share with us today? Well, thanks for having me back. So we do a lot of work here at Lancaster University around industrial control systems, cybersecurity, particularly around the technological end, the operational technology end. And we've had... Uh, several years of experience of building large-scale test beds which mimic credibly real-world environments. Um, and we've noticed in the kind of the literature more broadly, there's been a quite a significant focus on the creation of test beds and how to create credible test beds that when you uh, perform your uh, experimentation on, you can scale those results up to the different types of implementation, so water or other utilities, for example. Um, but one of the things that we've been starting to look at now is, you know, effectively building the test beds is your really your scientific apparatus. What does it mean to perform high quality scientific experimentation on those? And actually, are we building those test beds as high quality scientific apparatus as well? So hmm. it's, it's it's not just about establishing the credibility, but also how do you actually perform experiments on these industrial control systems test beds so that we can really learn uh, some interesting uh, concepts that we need to take forward into the field. Can you give us some examples of how those two things intersect? Yeah, so when we uh, think about building a test bed, one of the things we do is establish that as a, a scientific apparatus, as a, as a replication of a real-world environment, which is effectively what a lot of scientists do with their lab equipment. They think about how does uh, this chemical reaction, you know, or, or whatever it might be, the phys physical experiment is that representation of a real world environment. We have really focused on creating the apparatus as best we can. But then how do you actually perform the experiment on top of that? What are the protocols? What are the issues around um, the apparatus that you're using? What are the restrictions? What are the conditions? So we can't go out and build a whole water treatment work, for example. It's too complicated. There's too many real world processes. So how, when we're setting up an industrial control systems testbed, how do we make sure that the equipment that we're putting in, so the, the operational technology, the industrial control systems, that's correct. 
How are we making sure that the physical processes that we're putting into that, those are correct and, and they scale up to the real world environment? But then when we perform the experiment, whatever that might be, so that might be a penetration test, that might be understanding a new industrial um, intrusion detection system, that might be understanding a new piece of technology for protection that goes in there. How do we ensure experimentally and with experimental rigor that those results would be repeatable within a real world environment? And if they aren't necessarily 100% the same, what are the caveats that we need to put around the experimental results that anybody taking our information and working in the, the real world need to understand uh, so, so that they can put additional maybe security controls in and around that? How much of this, if any, involves checking in with the folks who have that experience out in the field, the folks who can say, yeah, you know, the manuals all say to do this, but everyone who's, who's out there actually knows that uh, this is something you have to look out for? That's the credibility aspect. And that's one of the things that in some of the papers that the folks here have written about is one of the, the, sort of the key things that we, we always try to, try to, to establish with the, the, with the apparatus, for example. So uh, whenever we implement, um, say, uh, an industrial control system for something like a water treatment plant, we always then try and check that with uh, a range of field engineers or other sort of technical roles. Say, so is this actually what would happen in and that establishes the credibility of the testbed, and that's an essential part. But what we're really interested in now is making sure that we are doing rigorous experimentation so that if, say, for example, we gave the same testbed apparatus with the same experiment to somebody else, how do they do that in such a way that they can get similar results? It's not just wildly divergent. Depending on who does the experiment, we want to really understand what it means to have highly defined experimental protocols around the results production that we can then really take forward into the industry to get them to understand the issues around the experiment, but also to be able to extrapolate those results to two slightly different environments. Hmm. All right. Well, Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. My guest today is Joseph Men. He's a longtime investigative reporter on technology issues, currently working for Reuters in San Francisco. He's the author of several books, the latest of which is titled Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. So the Cult of the Dead Cow uh, was born in Lubbock, Texas, in either 1984 or 1986. And it started out in the, in the bulletin board era, uh, where people had uh, 300 baud modems. And it, in order to connect online, it was a tremendous effort and not very satisfying. <laughs> These guys, the originals, um, were, uh, you know, young teenagers, uh, 11, 12, 13. 
you know, they'd gotten kicked out of the uh, sort of like the local bulletin board uh, for being like too young and, and ignorant. So they, they wanted to be elite by themselves. So they created um, their own bulletin boards. One of them was Demon Roach Underground. Uh, so that was the home board of uh, a kid who took the name Swamp Rat, which was later more uh, delicately uh, named uh, Grandmaster Rat. His real name uh, I put in the book is Kevin Wheeler. You know, he was a misfit. Most of these kids are misfits. Uh, they're smart, but they didn't, you know, fit in with the culture in, in, in Texas. And they, they were really desperate to communicate with each other. So they had these Bolton boards. And back back then, frequently only one person could connect at a time. Right, right. And so it, it was really, it was really tedious. So yeah, so by ne- by necessity, the early folks are, are early tech adopters because they're the ones would have would have put up with it. They build this sort of virtual clubhouse for themselves and their their other you know group of friends that they gather together here. Um, so how then does it evolve to uh, sort of common activities and and uh, you know th- efforts that they're making as a group? Right. So there are a number of, of key sort of transi- transitions. In the beginning, what brings them together, these the, this group of, you know, uh, independent bulletin board operators, were the Cult of the Dead Cow text files. Um, so text files are just essays. They could be fiction. They could be nonfiction. They could be about, hey, in the, in the case of the CDC, some of them were about hacking and some of them were just, you know, funny. So it was sort of like underground paper, like underground newspaper, high school underground newspaper type stuff. Some of them were political they're frequently funny, and sometimes they're obscene. They distributed them, you know, to other bulletin boards, and there were a lot of like important, like sort of marketing decisions that the group made. And one of them was to number these text files. Other bulletin boards would want to have on hand like CDC, you know, numbers one through ten or so forth. You know, they didn't they wanted a complete set. And so, um, while other many other bulletin boards did text files. The CDC ones got spread pretty widely and and got you know famous for that era of the internet. As the group grows, are are they putting any sorts of guardrails on themselves? It, when, I'm thinking of um, you know dealing with things that might be illegal. Uh, I, you know, I remember back in the those BBS days, uh, you know, phone freaking was a popular thing because you, you had to deal with things like long distance charges. Was there tolerance of that sort of thing, or did they did they self police themselves? How did it work? So this is this is very interesting, and I go into this in quite a, a, a quite a lot of detail in the book. In the beginning, everybody was stealing long distance service because if the bulletin board wasn't in your area code, then you had to pay long distance fees, or your parents had to pay long distance fees in right. order to connect. And you know these. You're going to be online for a while, particularly if you're trying to download anything, a program, a game, uh, anything like that. You're going to be connected for a long time, much, much longer than you would be to just chat to your cousin or some friend on the other side of town. So um, these kids were all looking at multi-hundred dollar phone bills, and the parents would cut them off after one month of that. So they basically all scrambled to get calling card codes, credit card numbers, or other ways, uh, illicit ways to connect online. And so... There was kind of this moral forge that happened where everybody had to consider, you know, what was okay about breaking the law and was it better? Was it okay morally some for some reason to steal from uh, AT&T because they're, you know, they did, you know, you did disapprove to them politically or they're a monopoly or, or whatever. You know, it's it's hard to justify as, as, a, as an adult. But, you know, when you're 13 and you really, really want to connect, you're willing to cut some corners. But what's right. interesting to me is that People drew their own moral lines. There was this wide. There was a wide variety. Some of the people in CDC 
did many more things that were considered criminal. But it was never a focal point of the group. And it was for some others, like Legion of Doom, Masters of Deception, quite famously. I mean, they were breaking into all kinds of stuff and, and you know, hacking each other in pretty serious ways, um, and it, which led to a lot of them being arrested. And that was never what CDC was about. But I think one of the most interesting things is that these guys who sort of grew up with you know, figuring out, knowing exactly where the law was and deciding in, in some cases where, where to cross that line actually makes them more reflective about what is appropriate and what isn't than the clean-cut kids that are just coming into cybersecurity today that went to a, like a nice college and then went for a big company and just start doing cybersecurity things. Those people can be kind of sleepwalked into doing things that they might later think is a bad idea. These guys, a lot of them were really generalists and were really curious about other parts of the security setup. And, you know, one of the things I admire about CDC is that, you know, they went beyond the technical stuff and sort of approached the media and, and politics with that same sort of critical hacker mindset uh, where, you know, we need to make things better uh, writ large. And maybe we don't know anything about how Congress works, but we'll figure it out if we have to. It strikes me that as a group like this that starts out with a bunch of people who are teenagers and, and you know, young adults, that it can survive this long, that it can survive that initial group going into adulthood and having to face all the things that all of us do as we become adults with bills to pay and families and, and so on and so forth, that it's been able to survive those changes, I, I think is quite remarkable. It's not only remarkable, it's unique. There, there is no other U.S. hacking group that has had anything like that kind of a career. It's funny, depending on somebody's age and when they came into the scene, you know, some people will say, oh, yeah, CDC. You know, when I first got online, those are the first text files I saw. Uh, and other people that came in a little later, it's like, oh, yeah, I was just starting to hack. And uh, the first tool I used was Back Orifice, which was one of, one of those publicly released uh, anti-Windows tools. And then other people who say, oh, yeah, the first thing I heard about them was I was into politics and I heard about this thing called hacktivism, which is something that the CDC invented. So all these successive phases of, of security work or sort of Internet culture, the CDC was in the forefront. Now, the subtitle of the book is How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. What's your notion here that they could be uh, the group to, to save the world? Well, they've already done, as I you know, have outlined, some pretty amazing things, right? There's At Stake, which um, included people like Alex Stamos, uh, who went inside and became chief security officer at Yahoo, which he left on principle after a secret court order asked for um, Yahoo to turn over, to search all of its users' emails for something. And then he went inside Facebook as chief security officer and blew the whistle on Russian election interference. So I think historically a very important move. Uh, also from at stake, uh, we get Windows Snyder, who was the driving force between Windows XP Service Pack 2 at Microsoft, which was a great leap forward in Microsoft security. And then uh, there's Katie Masuras, um, who is sort of known, I guess, as the like a godmother of the bug bounty movement. She got Microsoft to pay its first bug bounties, got the Pentagon to pay uh, hackers who were also working within a, you know, a friendly framework. And then uh, there's Veracode. So uh, Chris Rue, the same guy who wrote Back Orifice 2000, uh, the 99 sequel to Back Orifice, founded Veracode with another member of the loft, uh, Chris Isopel. And Veracode was the allowed 
big software buyers to see what the binaries in the code that they paid for were actually doing, as opposed to just looking at what the source code thought they should be doing. Uh, and that really was another way to tip the scales away from the software oligopolies uh, and monopolies to the customers who have been generally left in the dark uh, and with very little recourse. So there are those things. There's the entire hacktivist movement, which continues to this day in various flavors. But I think really more than anything, it's the, the idea of critical thinking that hackers as sort of outsiders and critical thinkers have tremendous value for society and this sort of sense of moral purpose. And I think big tech is in a lot of trouble right now, not just security, but big tech is in a lot of trouble right now because it lost touch with those roots, with the sense of, of technology being something that is supposed to make people's lives better. It's been about you know improvements in technology and about profit, and it hasn't really been about helping people. And I think a lot of that is because the people running these companies were not, didn't go through this sort of moral forge that the old school hackers did. Well, the book is The Cult of the Dead Cow. Joseph Men, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. <laughs> <laughs>